Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you again. It's good to gather and look into God's Word together to be confident. To be able to open up any uh, measure of teaching and to just sit with confidence under it, knowing it that these are the words from heaven, uh, is just so good and so freeing and, and so empowering for us as those that are seeking to follow the Lord. So what a blessing it is to gather again. A couple of weeks back when we were starting the book of Proverbs, I mentioned to you that uh, this might be one of the most practical books of all of Scripture. Uh, and I think today is a really good example of that. I've been referring to this reference I've been reading, which is Laws for Heaven for Life on Earth. And I, I think this chapter demonstrates that perhaps more so than some of the chapters we've looked at already. And it, it begins sort of the section now of Proverbs, which speaks very much to what's going on in the here and now, as opposed to you know getting ready for heaven, just kind of how to live my life here on the earth. Matthew Henry said this about this chapter. He said, the word of God not only teaches us divine wisdom for another world, but human prudence for this world. You hear that? You're like, what, who? That's what Matthew Henry said. The Word of God not only teaches us divine wisdom for another world, but human prudence for this world. And I think, as I said, today's passage of Scripture really nails that down for us. Just very good, practical information that I could walk out from here and do this for the rest of my life, and that would be a decision of wisdom. And so that's what we're going to look at. In cha- We've already looked at a portion of chapter 6 already. You may recall a few weeks ago, we, or last week I should say, we spent some time uh, looking at this idea of lust, uh, and there was a portion of, it was all of five, all of seven, and a portion of six, and so we combined that together. But in doing so, that meant we skipped the first 19 verses of chapter six, and so today we're going to focus our attention on that. And in this chapter, if you put it all together, one of the things you will notice is that Solomon, in writing to his son, is going to set off on this task of revealing to him three enemies that can destroy a person's life. So you're trying to walk on this way of wisdom. Here's three stumbling blocks that get a lot of people. And they get people financially, they get people physically, they get people morally, they get people spiritually. And in this chapter, those three enemies, the first five verses are unwise financial commitments. Do you know people that are generally good people, trying to live their life in a good way, but they made some unwise financial decisions and it really messed their life up a bit? Anybody know anyone like that? Are some of you those people? Yes. Some of us here, we, we certainly are. So the first chapter, or excuse me, the first section of the chapter, he deals with a lot in the book of Proverbs, is unwise financial commitments. The second one has to do with laziness. I would ask you to raise your hand if you're lazy, but I suspect you wouldn't do it, all right, because it's too much effort uh, to do so. Anyway, that's verses 6 to 11, and then as I, or, uh, then as I said, the last section would be uh, lust, which is the ending verses of this chapter. And so today we're going to look at the first of those two, since we have already dealt with the issue of lust. So let me read through verses 1 through 5. It says, Now, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. 
Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So the first five verses of this chapter are a warning against what is called surety or security for another person. And so if you look in my version, the way it's written, it says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger. Many of you probably know what that means. It's to make yourself liable for another person's debt in case that person can't pay their debt. And so, you know, the situation might be they want to go get a loan. You have no credit. I don't know who you are. How do I know you're going to pay this back? And so they come and they find you. You're an upstanding individual. You seem to have a lot of money in your bank account. Would you sign the note as well? And this way, if this person can't pay back the loan, we'll come to your house and you pay back the loan. Sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? Notice what Solomon calls it. In verse 2, he calls such a decision a snare. And he gives instructions, get out of that deal as quickly as you can. His words are in verse 3, do this, my son, save yourself. Listen to the way he, he describes to save yourself. You've come into the hand of your neighbor. He says, go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Give yourself no sleep. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter or a bird from the hand of of the fowler. And you notice there the urgency of his instructions. He says, save yourself. He talks about it as if you've become captive to another person. He tells them, go, hasten, hurry, and plead urgently in an attempt to get out of this agreement. I made a big mistake. How do I get out of this? What can I do to get out of this? He says in uh, verse four, don't give yourself any rest until you're no longer a part of this deal to be security for another person. And then he gives this picture of a bird that's frantically trying to free itself from a trap or a gazelle seeking to elude the hunter. Do you hear the urgency of his words? And so the word of wisdom would be, don't get involved in it at all. But if you have already gotten involved in becoming security for another person, get out of it as quickly as possible. It's that serious, it's that significant. And so if you've made a promise like this, you need to call somebody up today and say, look, I made a big mistake. I need to get out of that. Uh, Hopefully you're in a better place. Uh, Legally, you may not be able to get out of it. But he says there's strive, struggle with all speed to free yourself. Now that's the word of wisdom. And that should be enough for us. Well, the Bible says to not do it, so I'm not going to do it. However, I do think sometimes it's good to understand reasons behind certain things. And so considering why this pledge of not becoming security for another person, why we may want to avoid it. And there might be a variety of reasons, but let me just give you a few. For one, in pledging security so that another might be able to buy that car or buy that house or that business that is out of their price range, your assistance might actually be helping that person to buy something that it is not God's will for them to buy. Okay? So the fact that they don't have the resources to buy it outright or the fact that they don't have the resources or build up the credit that they can be trusted in of themselves to pay it back, your decision to step in may actually be intervening in what God is trying to do or not do in their particular lives. That would be bad. We know certainly things tend to be appreciated a whole lot more when they're worked for and they're sacrificed for, but you're intervening on that because they don't need to work a little extra or sacrifice a little more because you took care of of the problem. Many things that we, also we know this, many things that I just got to have it. 
I just got to have that boat because, boy, Saturdays are not the same anymore unless I'm out boating. I just got to have it. Sometimes things that we just got to have end up not being really that necessary when a little time elapses. And we really, I heard the best, two best times to own a boat is when you buy it and when you sell it. That's what I heard. When you buy it and when you sell it. Everyone's excited to get it and then nobody goes on it and they hate it and it's too much work. And so they sell it. I don't know if that's true. If any of you have a boat, I've always wanted to go out on the boat and maybe you could. <laughs> but it, it's got to be a speed boat. I'd like you to do all the way. No rowboats. I'm not interested in that. But if you've got a speed boat and you want to take me out, I'll go out with you. It'll be a lot of fun. So that might be one reason. Maybe the Lord doesn't want him to have that car, that house, that particular house or what have you, and you're just jumping in and solving their problem, um, but perhaps you're intervening in a way that God would not have you to do so. A second example of a negative of pledging security for another person uh, might be that you're encouraging that person to spend money that they don't have. All right, so it's slightly, it's similar, but slightly different from the first one. You're encouraging to spend money that they don't have because if they had a sizable emergency fund, as Dave Ramsey tells us we should all have, but if they had a sizable emergency fund, then there would be no need for someone to be security for them. If they had $50,000 in the bank already, then they're not going to ask for security for that car purchase or what have you. And their first order of business likely shouldn't be acquiring that fancy new car or that expensive home, but their first order of business should be learning to live with less and saving for those things that they need or want. But I think the most significant reason, and there's probably a bunch more, but the most significant reason that Solomon gives, I think it's the one that he has in mind, is that in pledging security for another person, you are putting yourself at great financial risk in the event that person defaults on their debt. That's the whole idea of pledging security. I'll pay the debt if you can't pay it any longer. And if they default on their loan, you've promised to pay something that is not your own but now you're responsible for it because you signed your name that you would do so. And that decision potentially could financially ruin you. And at the very least, it will most definitely impact you and your family, and it's going to impact the friendship of the person that you just signed on as security for. I heard someone say, the best way to lose a friend is to loan them money. The best way to lose a friend is to loan them money because money changes a relationship. And even if the person is steadily paying off their loan, the relationship has changed between the two people because they're no longer just friends, but now they're a borrower and a lender. Or for instance, they, in this case, they are a borrower and a security for that, lend, that loan. And from now on or from this point on, if I'm the lender or I'm the person who's become security for the other person, now from now on, I'm going to watch how you spend money because I loaned you money or I became security on a loan that you took out. And I'm, maybe I'll say it, maybe I won't, but I'm going to begin asking the question, are you, are you sure purchasing that thing is a good idea? You know, you got that loan you got to pay off. Do you really need that item? Now I'm questioning every decision that you make. Now I'm saying to myself, well, can't you get away with the more generic option than that one? Why do you need the expensive option? You still have that loan to pay, don't you? Or I begin asking questions, so how is that debt? going. And, and suddenly our relationship has changed. I'm no longer just your friend or a friend of yours. Now I'm your lender in some senses as well. And the introduction now of this, this idea of money into the equation brings with it all kinds of tensions and hassles. And the way of wisdom says to avoid such a decision. And if you've already made that decision, get out of it as quickly as you can. 
Now, you might be hearing that. You say, well, wait a minute. I like to be nice. I'm a nice guy. I like to help people out. I was in circumstances where I didn't have extra, but now I do. What if I want to help out a friend financially? What if I want to be a help out my son or my daughter? I'm an older parent and my kids are about to get a car or maybe get a house or something like that. What if I want to step in and help them with that loan? So the question then is, can we ever lend our assistance as it relates to financial matters in one way or another to a person? And I believe we can. Now, assuming the need is legitimate and it's one that God would have for that particular person, and I'll give you an example. So they, they might need a reliable vehicle to get to work or, or what have you. That doesn't mean they need a Maserati to get to work when they're 22 years old. But assuming that the need is legitimate, it's not going to be used for some nefarious purpose or something that God wouldn't approve of. It's been prayed about and all those sorts of things. I would say to you, it would be better for you to give the money to the person rather than loan the money to them or in what we're talking about here to become surety for them uh, to another that is loaning the money. And so the wisdom then of Proverbs 6 is a person ought to never allow themselves to be bound as security for more than he is both willing and able to pay himself. You should never allow yourself to be bound in a loan type of situation for more than you are personally willing and able to pay without hurting your own family and your own responsibilities. And if you're ever going to consider pledging security for another, you should approach the transaction as if you are about to take this debt on as your own personal debt. You should approach it in that way. And if you're ever going to consider giving your own money to another, you should approach it as if you are giving a gift and you have no expectation of getting that money back. That way, if the money isn't returned or they default on the loan, it's no big deal because you expected to pay it in the first place. See where we're going there? You didn't really need it. You weren't expecting it back anyway. And so there's no hard feelings in the process. So that is the practical word of wisdom. Number one, do not pledge yourself as security for another person's debts. Am I making that up? Greg, you know, it's kind of a stretch. I'm not really sure that's what it's saying. Am I doing that? No. So th- when the opportunity comes and your beautiful daughter who's 25 and her and her husband about to bar- buy that house and she gives you those little eyes and, and she looks in you and she says, Daddy kind of thing, mom, you turn to Proverbs 6 and you say, can't do it, sorry. And you know what? There's a lot of lessons learned when you're living in a crummy apartment and you're kind of miserable through the process, but you got each other, you know. I wish you well, honey. All right. My point is we could all find a reason why this doesn't apply. See, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Greg. I agree with Solomon. This applies in all of these other circumstances, but not this particular one. You go down that path, you're walking away from the way of wisdom, and you're about to set yourself up for something. May not happen, but it could. All right, so be be on your guard. So there you go. There's number one. Very practical, huh? Won't get you to heaven, but it'll keep your life here on earth in the way of wisdom. Let's go on to the second enemy. Second enemy looking to derail a man or woman from living a life of wisdom, Solomon says here in chapter 6, is laziness. Laziness. 
he addresses this by referring to the sluggard. What a descriptive word. Some words, you know what they mean right when you read it. Uh, A sluggard, he calls the person. So in verse 6, he says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, uh, chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food (coughs) in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Our children's church today are bringing in ants and slugs uh, to, to show the kids, um, yuck, uh, the slug part, yuck. Um, but it, it's very interesting how they're looking to work in some very practical things here. Uh, I think that's really good. Now, six verses, these six verses, they're a charge against the destructive behavior of laziness. Now, I'm not sure if I would actually classify laziness as a sin, though I think a few arguments could be made for why it is, but I'm not sure I would actually classify it necessarily as a sin, but whether or not laziness is a sin or not, it's certainly not the way of wisdom, but laziness is rather the way of fools. And as a means of teaching his son, Solomon warns his son not to become the sluggard or a sluggard, and he says, go to the ant, O sluggard. He says, consider her ways. A favorite verse of parents trying to wake their teenagers in the morning is to go down and to shake them and to say, go to the ant, you sluggard, or a little folding of the hands to rest leads to poverty. Now get up, uh, or something like that we might say. But to teach his son the importance of a life built on diligence and the danger of laziness, he uses the ant as a lesson for his son that though it's one of the smallest of God's creations, even without chief officer or ruler, somehow it and they manage to prepare the bread in, uh, it says prepare its bread in the summer and her food in the harvest. But conversely, notice the sluggard in verses 9 and so on. Conversely, the sluggard lies around waiting for poverty to overtake him in due time. Now, the sluggard, sometimes also the phrase is used, the slothful man, same thing we're talking about, uh, also a descriptive phrase. The sluggard or the slothful, slothful man are mentioned at least 25 different times in the book of Proverbs. 25 different times, never once in a positive light. Isn't that interesting? Never like, man, boy, the lazy man knows how to take it easy and rejuvenate himself. You know, never once is it ever positive. It's always in a negative light. And as much as our culture likes to highlight this idea of the blissfulness of being able to be lazy and do nothing, the Bible has a very different understanding of laziness. Now, it does not mean that you can never take a break. So some of us here need to learn, would you just stop and put your feet up for a minute and relax? Some of us don't know how to relax, and we're always going, we're always going, we're always going. And typically the Lord says, you need to relax and you get sick, and you lay in bed for a weekend, and then you're ready to go again. And so some of us need to learn how to relax. I'm looking at you, Eric Leidick, all right? So that's not the point. The point is not saying uh, that you can never take a little bit of a break, because our bodies do need to do that on a regular basis. It rejuvenates us. It refreshes us. Oftentimes, it causes us to work harder and better 
when we do go back to our labor and our efforts. But what Solomon has in mind here is the person that is perennially lazy, always lazy. So not the person that takes a nice Saturday afternoon nap in the late summer sun. His wife brings him a little iced tea with an umbrella and all that. We're not talking about that particular person. We're talking about the person that can be found outside napping on Monday afternoon and Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday afternoon and so on and so forth. That's who Solomon is addressing. And he, he, he asks the question, how long are you going to lie there, you sluggard? We usually shouldn't call people names, but it's in the Bible. So if you see it happening, go ahead, go for it. It says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now look at the reasoning. Well, just a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands uh, to rest in poverty. It's going to come upon you like a robber, um, like an armed man. Ants, conversely, they're industrious, they're diligent, they're wise, amazing. Have you ever watched a group of ants work? Me either, yeah. But I've, I've heard things, you know what I mean? No, I have. You see this whole line of ants, and they're carrying a tree or, or something, you know what I mean? And they build a log cabin somewhere. It's remarkable. They're industrious. They're diligent. They're wise. Instinctively, they don't have an ant class where they're learning these things, you know, but instinctively they know that they need to be busy now in preparation for then. They just know it, and they do it. It's pretty remarkable. Now, the emphasis here is not so much on saving for the future. Um, you know, getting it in the, in the summertime for, for later on. Or That's not really the emphasis, though certainly there is wisdom in doing so. We see examples of that in other parts of Proverbs. But the, the point here in chapter 6 is an emphasis on hard work and industriousness. That's the point here. And the sluggard is unwilling to do either of those two. One thing that caught my attention as I was reading this, and I don't know this scientifically, if ants get hot, you know how we get hot and like, oh, it's so hot. Like yesterday, I was dying outside. Um, it wasn't that hot, but it felt hot to me. Uh, I don't know if ants get hot, but I have to imagine that they do, uh, one would think. But here you have these ants, as it says, laboring in the summer heat. And so if ants do indeed get hot and sweat and all that kind of stuff, here they are nonetheless still laboring in the summer heat, whereas they could have made excuses for themselves. But they do it anyway. And so it's not promising that the work is going to be easy or the diligence in life is going to be pleasant at all times, but you do it anyway. And so here you have these ants, even in the summer when the weather is hot and the work is going to be difficult, they're still gathering up food and laying it up for their future. And so work is sometimes difficult. I think sometimes we think work is a curse. This whole idea of having to work is a curse in our society. That's not a biblical understanding of work. Work is not a curse. God gave Adam work to do in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the scene. I don't know if you ever took notice of that, but God gave Adam work to do in the Garden before sin entered the picture. Work was not the punishment of their sin. Difficulty in labor was, we see that, that the work would be hard and he'd be tilling the field and thorns would come up and things like that. But the idea of labor in general is not a punishment for sin in our society. So what that means is that the Lord gave us work for our good. This idea of working. I didn't get an amen on that one from you folks here. <laughs> what I find interesting is when God has all done his creation process, part of what he calls very good is the fact that Adam would get up and he would work. And so 
in Genesis there, it says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. And so uh, when we engage in honorable employment, we are cooperating with God in that time. In, car- in, caring, for, in, using, uh, in caring for and using his creation, we're helping to provide for others. And a, a very valuable practical response to work is, in that whole process, we are growing in character. I reference many, many times the fact that I grew up on a farm. Some of the hardest work that I did uh, in my life, really, because a lot of my jobs I sat at a desk. Um, but I reference it many times because God used it in my life in so many ways to grow character in me from that hard work. There's a story told of a farmer that had miles and miles of farmland filled with produce of all sorts. And in addition, a small little vegetable garden just outside of his home, which he gave his sons the responsibility to care for. Somebody asked why he bothered with a private vegetable garden when he had so many acres and acres of produce available to him and his family from the rest of the farm. And his response was, because I'm not raising vegetables there, I'm raising sons there. There's value in hard work. And people can learn some character traits through the process, and it can reveal some character traits that need to be changed in the process of hard work. So God uses work in our lives to refine people, the people that we are becoming. And the wise individual realizes this, and he doesn't shun it, but rather he embraces it. Not so the sluggard. I mentioned to you that he is mentioned 20, or she, it could be she, 25 times in the book of Proverbs. And so looking at many of those examples in the book of Proverbs, we find a number of different marks of a sluggard. I hope they don't describe you. But if they do, that's cool. That's the Lord working, revealing in your life. Bring that to him. Confess that. So we learn here in our passage, the sluggard loves to sleep. We read that, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Proverbs 26 says it this way, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. And so you go down and wake up your teenager or I pick on teenagers, I'm sorry. You're wonderful people. But you go down and you you shake them to wake up and they're facing this way and you go down five minutes later and they're facing that way and you go down another five minutes later now yelling and they're facing back at you and so on like a door turns on its hinges. Now, certainly wise people enjoy sleep. We saw that example a few weeks back that uh, when a person with a good conscience goes to sleep, they're able to sleep well and through the night because they do so with a good Uh, conscience. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that sweet is the rest of the laborer. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer. So you work hard all day and boom, you're in bed and you fall asleep. And next thing you know, you wake up in the morning or whatever. And so certainly there's nothing wrong with sleep. Sleep in and of itself is not evil. But what's being addressed here is the laziness and the selfishness of the one that is called the sluggard, the one that wastes their days away sleeping. One example, one mark of a sluggard. Another example here in chapter 10, I find this interesting of Proverbs. It says that the work of the sluggard is more a nuisance than it is a help. Now here's how it says it. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Vinegar to your teeth and smoke to your eyes isn't going to kill you, but it's annoying, right? And you try to avoid it and you try to get away from it here. It's not a pleasant experience. And so even if you are able to get your sluggard up and out of bed, their work effort and their output is likely going to leave you wishing you never got them out of bed. 
right? And so that is a mark of a sluggard. In a number of different places, it tells us that the sluggard lives essentially in a fantasy world. Proverbs 13 says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 21, the desire of the sluggard kills him. His hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves, he craves, he desires, he desires, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. The sluggard there lying around all day, dreaming up all sorts of plans about getting this thing and getting that thing, but never actually taking the steps to actually going out and getting it. They live in this fantasy world. Proverbs 26 tells us the sluggard is a know-it-all or they have a know-it-all attitude. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And so this from a guy that rolls out of bed at noon and is still unshowered and in his robe when everybody else is coming home from work, never succeeded at anything in his own life, but sure can tell others how to succeed in theirs. Solomon calls that person out as a know-it-all. Another example is that Solomon gives of a sluggard is that they are able or they actually excel in making excuses. And they can even come up with some doozies. Proverbs 26, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There are lions in the streets. That may be the case. We don't see it, but I guess the Simpsons see it um, or whatever. But somehow... Somehow, the diligent manage a way to figure it out. So even if there is a lion out there in the street, somehow the diligent manage to find a way around it. For some reason, the sluggard, the way for the sluggard turns out to be impassable, while the way of the wise, as it says in Proverbs 15, turns out to be straight and level. Just funny how things work out that way. If you don't want there to be a way, then there won't be a way. And the diligent one has a, a means or a way of finding it. And so you got all these marks of a sluggard, lazy, a bad worker, a know-it-all, constantly making excuses. Think of that, about that person. Try not to picture your friend or anything like that. But, you know, picture that type of person, lazy, bad worker, know-it-all, constantly making excuses. Is that the person you would want to have to work with? A person like that? I worked with a few people like that. Not Will Lynch, of course. Um, but some other folks there. Is that the type of person you wanted to work with? Is that the type of person you would want to marry? I don't want to marry. I'll be fighting with my husband or my wife through the whole process. In my case, my wife, through the whole process there. Would you just get up and go do something? And so with all of that in mind, is that the type of person you want to become? And so the way of wisdom is don't go the way of the sluggard. I hope we would all agree, no, I don't want to work with a guy like that, marry a person like that, and certainly I don't want to become a person like that. Solomon says such a manner of living is dangerous. He says in verse 10 and 11, ultimately in 11, he said ultimately it will lead to poverty. It says poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A fatal consequence of this person's slothfulness is quite naturally poverty and want. And let me add this here to this, that statement, and that's what it should be. That's what it should be. Greg, that sounds horrible. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, for even when we were with you, we could give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now notice what it says there. It doesn't say he who cannot work. What it says is, rather, he who will not work. 
Certainly there should be systems in place, particularly in a society like ours, our own, that has resources available in that regard. There should be a system in place for those that cannot work. But this is referring to those that will not work. And it's not always best to take care of all of the sluggard's needs. It's not always best to do so, and it's not always loving necessarily to do so. Because doing so may simply further encourage that person to remain a sluggard. And you let them miss a few meals, and pretty soon there's an increased motivation level that prompts the person to get out of bed and begin looking for a way to earn some money and to be able to get some food. I remember years ago with my friend Kevin Barber, and we, we put down some food for a dog, and the dog went over to and turned its nose away from the dog food. Hmm, I don't like that dog food. And Kev said, leave it there for two or three days. He'll like it or whatever. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. When the hunger starts setting in, that dog's going to be very grateful uh, for that whole process. And so we have to use wisdom as we step in to be kind, just like with the, the situation of loaning money to somebody or, or signing on for another particular person. We have to use wisdom. How is God leading what would God have me to do? And it's not always just simply to give a handout. That might actually be harming the sluggard through the process. Okay, I think we've uh, nailed this point down about laziness and sluggardliness. Here's the point. Work hard, plan ahead, be diligent, be industrious, and the Lord will bless your path. Now, Solomon will continue in verse 12 by talking about the worthless person. And he says this, he says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment, he will be, bro- he will be broken beyond healing. I mean, read that. It's a classic description of a con man. person says one thing, but means another, means another continually is plotting mischief, we see there in verse 13, sowing discord among people, saying one thing to this guy, another thing to that guy, behind this person's back, and so on and so forth. It's interesting that if a sluggard is condemned for doing nothing, even more so the wicked man that does evil continually and is looking for uh, even more ways to do so. And Solomon calls that person a worthless person. King James, some of your versions will have the word naughty there. I don't know if I like that, that word because, you know, you just sound like a little kid that, that takes the candy or whatever. Oh, naughty. Don't do that. Give it to me first. You know, the candy in my case here. And so it says naughty. The idea is it's worth naught is the, kind of the old English or worth nothing. And so that's how we get this idea of worthless. So naughty sounds very different than worthless, but they're the same thing that is being said there. And so Solomon brings up this worthless person as part of his exhortation to his son about the type of person he either should or should not become. And so he said, don't be a sluggard. Don't become security for others. Don't be these things that a worthless person are. Don't fool around in these areas. Now, as he has done so previously, he presents the reason. And he says there in verse 15, because calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be broken um, beyond healing. Living and acting in the ways that are described here, it has a way of catching up with people. Certainly we know it will at the day of judgment. The scripture makes that very clear. But it has a way of catching up with people here on the earth as well. 
And so whether it's the, the long arm of the law, as they say, or it's the unscrupulous business partner that finally stuck it to you, the way that person stuck it to everyone else, one way or the other, the walls are going to come crashing down and calamity is suddenly going to come upon that person. And so Solomon says there's a way to avoid that calamity. Don't run with that crowd. And don't become a part of that crowd. Don't be like a person that is in that crowd. Now, he also spent some time in verse 16 and to the end of our section today describing or making a very strong statement. He says, such, in my words, such behavior, he says, the Lord despises. Notice how he words it. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the seventh, one that sows discord among the brothers. Those things that characterize the wicked man in verses 12 to 15 are the things that Solomon says the Lord hates in verses 16 to 19. And it begins with this sort of poetic phrase, there are six things the Lord hates, seven better, uh, that are an abomination to him. It's sort of a poetic way of saying it. He gives us a specific list, but he doesn't give us an exhaustive list. So he gives us these seven things, but that doesn't mean that these are the only seven things that the Lord dislikes. And, you know, you search out your list and, oh, good, my thing isn't on there. I can keep doing it or something like that. That's not what it is saying here. So if you're involved in something that isn't on this list and the Lord's been convicting you about it, well, confess that as sin. Agree with him, repent, and begin to walk in that repentance here. But here he gives us this list here, six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And as we begin taking a quick look at these things, what I would say to you is this. Please don't hear this list and think about and have other people in mind. And that, you know, I knew it. I knew it. The Lord hates it. And that's why I don't like that person for what they do because they're proud or they shed innocent blood or they're a liar and so on. Don't think about somebody else as we're studying this material. Think about yourself. Allow the Lord to search out your own heart and to see if these things are in there or even if it's just seeds of these things that are in each of our hearts. Six things that the Lord hates. Now notice one thing about it before we look at each sin. Each of these that are mentioned are injurious to, the neighbor, to our neighbor. Again, not the person that lives next door to us, but the people that we come in contact with. And the wicked person is continually injurious to their neighbor. Whereas in the New Testament, we are told to love our neighbor as ourselves. Complete opposite of what is going on here. I also find it interesting that every person, every part, it seems, of the wicked person's anatomy is devoted to evil in these verses. And so quickly, we see they have haughty eyes. They have a lying tongue. They have hands that shed innocent blood. They have a heart that invents wicked plans. They have feet that make haste to carry out those plans. They have a mouth that breathes out lies, and again, their mouth sows discord. Every part of their body seems to be devoted to this idea of sinning, and yet the New Testament and the Old Testament teaches us that our bodies were given to honor the Lord and to glorify the Lord, and yet this wicked person, this worthless person, is doing the exact opposite. The Apostle Paul would write in the New Testament, you know the verse probably, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. Haughty eyes, hands that shed evil, feet that make haste, uh, hands that shed innocent blood, feet that make haste to evil. That's not glorifying God with your body. And so the exact opposite of what we see a person of wisdom, a person that's following the Lord in his ways, is going uh, to be doing. These men are guilty of that. And so let's take a look at it. The first, he says, is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes is a way of ultimately describing pride. I think it's interesting the Lord chooses the first thing that he hates in this list here is pride because I think the reason is, is straightforward is because so often every other sin is the result of our pride. So it's in pride that we think we're better than everybody else and so we get offended and mistreat others when they've forgotten just how great we actually are. I think you've forgotten how great I am and so we treat them poorly. That's pride. It's in pride we think that the rules don't apply to us. And so we hold some high standard for everyone else um, but ourselves, and then we get highly annoyed when other people don't meet that particular standard. Pride is usually the basic motivation for all other sins. All the way even back to the beginning, we learn in Isaiah chapter 14 that it was because of pride that Lucifer fell. And it's interesting, it was to Eve's pride that Lucifer, or Satan at that point, the, the serpent at that point, appealed in the garden. One commentator, I, I like the way he said it, he said, pride is dust deifying itself. You and I are the dust. Pride is dust deifying itself. It's so foolish. And yet, we all wrestle with it. And some among us here have allowed it to take up root in our hearts. The word of wisdom to begin with here in this list is to confess it as sin and have the Lord rooted out of your heart. Now, the second thing the Lord hates is a lying tongue. Again, the tongue was created to glorify God. To lie is to pervert the use of the tongue. And so if you are prone to lie, and some people just lie for no apparent reason. There's no reason. They just lie, and, and they'll be asked about it. Well, why'd you lie about that? I don't even know why I lied about it. I wanted you to think more highly of me or, or whatever. Some people are just prone to lie. If you are prone to lie, Here's the word of wisdom. Stop it. Stop lying. Okay, well, great. Could I minimize lying? No, you got to just stop it. All right, if you're prone to lie, stop it. It's a sin. The Lord hates it. And if you're a believer, it's not of your heavenly father. In fact, in the New Testament, we learn that the devil is the father of lies. So if you're prone to lie, your father uh, perhaps has passed his gene down onto you. When we lie, we open the door for the devil to work in and through our lives. Conversely, when we speak truth, according to the book of Ephesians, we open the door for the Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives. And so again, if you're prone to lie, you need to stop that. Third thing the Lord hates, hands that shed innocent blood. That's a reference to murder. And so the third thing he talks about here is this idea of uh, murder, in, uh, shedding innocent blood. Every human life is of infinite value to God. And the wicked man in this passage does not see this. And so as such, he will shed, not just shed blood, but he will shed innocent blood. Murder, for no particular reason at all. Sounds a lot like the senseless violence we are seeing run rampant through our nation, doesn't it? And even in some of our local communities. Sounds a lot to me like the horror of nearly three quarters of a million babies aborted every single year in the United States of America. Hands that shed 
innocent blood, the scripture says, are an abomination to the Lord. Fourth one, he says, is a heart that continually devises wickedness. Solomon says, the Lord despises a heart and a mind given to imagining ways to do evil. Warren Wiersbe, he said, the imagination is the womb, quote unquote, out of which either evil or good is born. And ponder the ways to do evil long enough, and before long your feet are going to make haste to run to do that evil. And Solomon says that's the fifth thing that the Lord despises. You see that there are feet that make haste to run to evil. The word picture there is a feet or a person that is so eager to carry out the wicked plans that they dreamed of. It's almost as if the person is fearful that he will lose his opportunity to sin. If I don't hurry and sin, the opportunity will be gone. So he rushes to make sure that he can get his sin in. Solomon says the Lord despises that. Two final ones both have to do with the mouth. The sixth and seventh thing, he says, the Lord hates the one that bears false witness. That would be, in, it's lying certainly, but it's in the con- uh, context of like a courtroom situation. And he says the one who sows discord. I find that interesting. Seven things are listed here, and two of those things have to do with lying. And so I said earlier, if you're prone to lie, you need to stop it. You know, you look at this list and you think, well, wait a minute, murder is on this particular list, and so on. And yet lying is on that list as well. And the Lord puts the two in the same categories. And so you say, well, at least I don't murder people. Well, the Lord would look at it differently. If you are a liar, you need to stop it. And the Lord also adds there the one that sows discord among the brethren. And again, how interesting this is. Oh, so I talk about people behind their back. So I throw people on the, under the bus. Not that big a deal. Again, at least I'm not murdering anyone here. And yet God ranks the one that sows discord right alongside of murderers and perjurers in a court of law. David would write in the Psalms, how good and how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. And the one who sows discord is doing the exact opposite of that and is being used ultimately by the enemy to destroy the unity that the Holy Spirit would seek to create. And so warning against this idea of sowing discord, uh, it comes up again and again and again in the book of Proverbs. And as we obviously make our way through the book, we'll come to them. We'll talk about them each time. But I think it's important to quickly note some things that the Bible talks about in regards to sowing discord. And so we see examples in Proverbs and other places that pride can cause discord. Proverbs 13 tells us rude behavior can cause discord. A number of places, gossiping can cause discord amongst the brethren. Anger and hatred and acting out on those things. Three different places in the book of Proverbs speak of that causing discord. And a quarrelsome spirit can cause discord. And some people just like to have a fight. Please, stop. Take a pill or something. You know, figure out a way to stop. You got to stop sowing discord. The point is this. However it is accomplished, the end result is the same. The Lord says it's abominable. And so if you're one given to sowing discord, just as if you're one given to murder or given to lying or any of the other ones, very simple instructions. Stop it. There's that old uh, Bob Newhart uh, sketch. If you haven't seen it, just look up Bob Newhart, stop it. 
uh, and th- he's a counselor, and that's his advice for people. Oh yeah, you don't you do that? Mm, stop it. You know, it's his advice, and it's excellent. You should watch it. It was on one of the comedy shows there. Um, but let me put it another way: if discord is continually in your wake, it always seems that in your interactions with people. There's discord that is going on, um, separation from other people, tension between other people. Then I think you should take serious inventory of your life and what you're doing and how perhaps you might be contributing to that, even if you are doing so in a way that is unaware. Allow the Lord to search that out in your heart. And if you find yourself given to sowing discord, know this, that that is an abominable practice to the Lord. This verse could not be more clear that the God, the God of love and peace, and it says it this way. You know, a lot of times you say, well, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. The Bible doesn't always say that. And in this particular case here, it says he hates the one that sows discord. Okay? That doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy, Greg. Yeah, I know, so stop it. <laughs> there you go. All right, stop it. The God of love and peace hates him who sows discord among the brethren. And the reason is, is because God's delight is our unity. Do you know that on Jesus' last night here on the earth, as he went off into the garden and he prayed, or even just earlier than that, as he was praying, he prayed for you and I. That's remarkable. He prayed for all those that would come after him, and he prayed for our unity. John 17, it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, uh, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. His prayer was for our unity. And many churches throughout America, throughout the world, no doubt, over the last 2,000 years or so, has been, have been hurt or even destroyed by those that would sow discord among the brethren. I'm going to guarantee you, if you've been coming to this church long enough or you continue to come to this church for any length of time, you're going to have a problem with somebody else in this church. You're going to rub somebody the wrong way and they're going to rub you the wrong way. And they're going to say something that they're probably walking out the door thinking, I should have never said that. But they're going to say something that offends you or they're going to ignore you when you thought that they should be more kind to you or they may not take notice of you in a particular circumstance, and there's going to be a problem amongst us. And you're going to be tempted to go and talk to some friend that you know is a sympathetic ear and say, well, you know that guy, or you know that girl, or what have you. That's sowing discord among the brethren. You know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to go to your prayer closet and deal with it and say, you know what, Lord, it really hurt me when so-and-so didn't say this, or they did say that, or they did this, and they didn't do that. And the Lord will either minister to your heart and say, you know what, you've done that sort of thing a million times yourself. Forgive them. Or it'll resonate in your heart so much that you can't get rid of it. And then your responsibility is to then go to that person and say, hey, that other day, it really hurt when you did that. And hopefully that, and then you're done. You've done what you were supposed to do. Now the problem's with them. And if they say, well, I don't care, I'm glad I heard, I don't like you. I don't know why they're, all of a sudden they're Southern, all right? But uh, that's their problem. You've done what you were supposed to do. But going and gossiping about that person, Jesus prayed for our unity. And the truly godly person sows seeds of unity and peace, not seeds of division. 
James 3 says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make for peace. Amen? And so, as I finish up, let me just remind you, three enemies that Solomon exhorts his son about here, God exhorts you and I about, unwise financial commitments. Do you remember we were talking about that like an hour ago? You're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Laziness. And then as we saw last week in the chapter, lust as well. Very practical information for living my life tomorrow morning when I get up. Laws from heaven for life here on earth. And I just pray that the Lord would speak to our hearts about each of these areas. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I I look forward to heaven, certainly. I think all of us do here, and we want to make sure we're prepared for that. And yet we know that uh, there's a good chance we're going to be on this earth for decades and decades, even decades and decades more for some of us here. And so, Lord, we want to live here on the earth wisely and correctly as you would have us to live. And so we thank you, Lord, for these very practical words. And Lord, we pray now for the courage to walk in these things. Lord, I I do pray that as we go and we allow you to search out our heart, we take some time with these things that are abominable things to you. Lord, we allow you to just show us, do I do that? Am I prone to do that? Have I given space for that to take up root in my heart? And Lord, in wisdom, we would say, well, if the Lord hates them, I should hate them. And we would confess them as sin and give them over to you. Lord, I believe if each one of us in this room did that, you would be certainly very blessed and pleased. And each of our lives would move forward um, more smoothly, exactly as you would have us to here on the earth. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.